This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. All right, so we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 this morning. (laughs) If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Caitlin, for reading that awesome passage. Um, yeah, so it's great being here with everybody. I think today is like unofficial parents' day or something. Um, so I've got the Mingis here, got the Bestleys here, and um, got the Bones here. Yeah, nice. Good to see everybody. Um, and so, yeah, we got a, a good crowd today. It's uh, really, in a lot of ways, really refreshing to be able to worship with everybody in in everybody's presence. Um, but it's also really good to, to jump back into Corinthians. Um, yeah, and it's also, oh, I'll take off my mask. Thank you, Jesse, for the, for the cue there. That way I don't have to shout at everybody. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's good to be here. It's good to get back into Corinthians. Um, it's, it's also good to have a passage that doesn't make you squirm in your shoes as we read through Corinthians. Um, we've, we've been in Corinthians for a while, and one of the main purposes of this letter is to, to highlight and to um, really just make the Corinthians aware of their sin. And so, uh, and, and then the hope is that then they would turn from that sin to the beauty of the gospel and be transformed by that beauty. Um, and so, uh, in this letter, as Paul walks through and, and, and highlights and makes the Corinthians aware of their sin, he, he doesn't spare many details. And maybe he does, but um, it, it, it leads to a lot of, of uncomfortable conversations that we don't like having with each other, really. And so uh, today we get to talk uh, about a passage, uh, probably one of the most famous passages in all of scripture. Um, I didn't really see anybody squirming as we read this one, and <laughs> that's, that's really cool to see. But um, this morning, we have the opportunity to, to talk through about, talk through this beautiful passage that's an exposition on, on love, 
on real love. Um, and so kind of to um, recap and to put us into the context of this passage, um, we've taken a couple weeks off of Corinthians. We had the snowpocalypse of 2021. Um, who else was in their pajamas for two days straight? <laughs> It was kind of nice to be able to just hang out at home with things not canceled. I saw a four by four or four wheel drive truck get stuck in our street. Uh, so it's good that everybody that we stayed home. Um, but anyway, then the, the following week, we had a branding reveal where we uh, talked about all the new images and words that we see. We got to talk through our values of inward and outward love, word centrality and gospel beauty. Um, and that was a really, really special time to be able to talk through that. We had a lot of fun. Um, but the last time we were in Corinthians, uh, so it was three weeks ago now, um, we had our brother Kent come and he talked to us about um, this uh, just the beauty that we see in communion. Um, and he talked about the reality that we right now get to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And in doing that, we, we ultimately are waiting on that, that final communion that we get to enjoy with our Savior in the new kingdom. Um, and so that was a few weeks ago. Um, unfortunately, we're having to skip over chapter 12 because we were pushed back a week. And in order to stay on track with Easter, we want to talk about resurrection for Easter. Um, so we're talking about love today. So we had to skip over the part where Paul talks about how the Spirit equips the entire body of Christ through various gifts. Um, and so last week, we got to see uh, some of those gifts uh, at work as we kind of processed together how uh, the Spirit has gifted Laura in particular to help us with these graphics. And, and not only these images, uh, not only the text, not only the colors, um, but even in helping us think through who we are as a church and then what we do because of that. Um, and in, in helping us put these values out in front of us, like we talked about last week, to remind ourselves that this is how we're supposed to, to, to act in the world around us. Uh, we talked about our weakness being outward love. We talked about our strength being inward love, but we wanna put outward love to make, make sure that that's always at the front of our mind, that this inward love needs to flow out into the world outside of the walls of Emmaus. And so we're thankful for that. We got to celebrate uh, the Spirit working together uh, to build up the church. Um, and so along with those kinds of gifts, though, um, in chapter 12, we, we also see uh, a list of other spiritual gifts. We see wisdom, we see knowledge, we see faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, tongues, interpretation of tongues, and all these are for the purpose of building up the church. Um, and Paul, he, Paul talks about those in that context because the Corinthian church had been, had been uh, pursuing and seeking those gifts for, for the opposite reason, and that's to build up themselves. Um, and so Paul really highlights that the, the purpose of these gifts is for nothing else than building up the church. Um, and he says that these gifts, these higher gifts, they're, they're to be desired because the Spirit uses them to, to build us up, to transform us into the image of Christ and to make his name known in the world outside of the church. Um, but even, even as great as these gifts are, even as, as miraculous as, as these gifts are, even uh, when, it, when it is super obvious that it's the Spirit and nothing else working in the people, even as effective as those are for, for building up the church for God's glory. Um, he says at the end of chapter 12 that there's something better even than that. And so he ends chapter 12 by saying, and still a much better way I'll show you. 
And this way is the way of real love that we just read about here. And so this morning, we get to hear Paul defining the single most important aspect of the Spirit building up his church, and, and that's love. And so uh, here's where we're going today. Um, as we talk through uh, this passage, we're going to see uh, what the absence of love entails. Um, and then we're also going to see the synonyms of love, and then we're going to see the permanence of love. And so before we jump in, uh, let's pray, because we need the Spirit to work in our hearts. Father, we're so thankful that we have this opportunity to come here today and worship you. Um, and I pray that as, as we kick off the Holy Week, that we would continually be drawn again and again to the work that you accomplished in your life, in your death, and in your resurrection. I pray that uh, today specifically, as we, as we look at this uh, beautiful definition of love, that your spirit would teach our hearts, that uh, you would open uh, our eyes to see this beauty and um, to be drawn into that. Um, and I pray that you would help us to see that uh, even as 2,000 years ago this day, as, as Jesus marched into Jerusalem uh, with uh, palm trees, palm branches at his feet, um, marching to show the greatest picture of love that this world has ever known. I pray that you would uh, just awaken our hearts to that and that you would, you would teach us uh, what it means to also be united to Christ. Um, and so I pray that today you would convict us of the ways that we fail to love. I pray that you would um, then draw us into your perfect love. Um, and Spirit, we need you to teach our hearts these things um, because we, we can't grasp these. We can't understand these on our own. Um, so we need you to teach us. I pray that it be your words that are said and not mine, um, and that we would um, be drawn over and over again to the beauty of your gospel. So your name we pray. Amen. All right. Um, so as we read through this passage today, we kind of already talked about how it doesn't really make any of us squirm in our seats, but I would also guess that there's not many people sitting out there that were kind of saying in their heads, oh, wow, that's a really cool passage. I've never heard that before. Um, this is a super famous passage, and honestly, I bet it'd be the same. I bet it'd be exactly the same if we were to walk out that door, go to Broadway with a survey in our hands, and, and ask people uh, a few questions uh, with, with one answer. What is patient? What is kind? What does not envy or boast? What is not arrogant or rude? I would, I would be willing to bet, my wife and I were, were having a debate about this last night, uh, I'd be willing to bet that most people would say love. I bet that most people would, would get, maybe I'm wrong, I don't know, but uh, this passage, uh, regardless, is a super... <laughs> thank you. Uh, this passage is a super uh, prominent passage, um, but uh, yeah, and so it's, it's one that we know and that we recognize. And so, uh, in fact, if you, if you watch the Super Bowl this past year, um, then there was a commercial that showed a few times, and this commercial, it highlighted the same love that Paul talks about right here. Um, and so, but anyway, this passage, uh, the reason why it's so influential is because this passage and, and other passages that are similar to it it's given the world a new definition of love. 
And so before the New Testament was written, this word that Paul uses for love here, um, it, it really, it's the use of this word was kind of a, a marginal, it was a marginal word. It wasn't used that much. It was kind of, we, we don't really understand what it meant before the New Testament came, came into writing. Um, and so it was, it was weak, yeah, wide range of meaning, wasn't used very frequently. But all of a sudden, when you get to the New Testament, and when you, when you get to the documents of the first century church, the founding fathers, this word erupts. You see it all over the pages of the New Testament. You see it all over the, the founding fathers' documents. Um, and uh, this, this word really, the reason why that happened is because uh, whenever uh, the church wanted to talk about this love, uh, there wasn't a good option. There wasn't a good word that could define the love uh, that was prevalent and in, in how, how prevalent in the church and that really captured how the church thought about love. And so what they did was they took this word that was uh, on the margins of their language and they, they latched onto that word and they groomed, they started grooming that word so that it takes on a whole new meaning that once wasn't present. Um, so, my wife got her master's of linguistics from CU Boulder, and uh, the, there's a linguistic term for what's going on here, and it's a type of semantic change called amelioration. I think I said that right. <laughs> um, and so that basically is where uh, this, it happens when a word is collectively kind of upgraded in its meaning. It, it takes a new and improved definition. And so the early church, they established a whole new definition of what love was with this word, and that previously that definition wasn't present in the culture around them. And so this is why we need an entire chapter to define what this new definition is. And so if you haven't guessed it already, this word is agape. And so I know all of us have likely heard that word as well. Um, but whenever they, uh, whenever the early church did this, whenever they upgraded this definition and, and put it into use and put it into writing and started using it in the way that they're using it, uh, they were so successful in their implementation of that word that now, 2,000 years later, when we're sitting on our couch watching the Super Bowl and an ad comes on and we see this foreign word talked about and mentioned in a commercial, we all more or less know what it means. And it means what, this, what the church has defined it as. And so that's the word that we get to spend some time talking about today. Um, and that's, that's the one word that Paul defines. It's the single most important element that the Spirit uses in transforming the church into the image of Christ. And so uh, as we look at how Paul in the early church defines this, this new word, um, let's consider how this challenges our own understanding of what love is today. And so read with me uh, verses 1 through 3. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. Amen. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And so what we see immediately here is what our situation would be in the absence of this love. 
These gifts that, that Paul has just unpacked, these spiritual gifts, as amazing as they are, without love, they're totally meaningless. These gifts are all things, they're all magnificent works that the Spirit uses for building up his church, for claiming his name in the world around him. But as amazing as they are, without love, they fall completely flat. Without love, they're, they're useless. And so uh, listen to how Paul communicates that here. Uh, he kind of communicates this with a growing intensity as, as these verses develop. And so uh, look at it with me so, again. It says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm a noising gong or a clanging cymbal. And so he starts off with a, with a somewhat uh, trivial, not super consequential result of this absence of love. He said, if I have these amazing gifts, but there's no love, then I'm pretty annoying and I'm useless. So keep going. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to understand all, uh, sorry, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And so he goes from saying that without love, I'm pretty annoying and I'm useless to without love, I am nothing. And so uh, keep going with me. Uh, and if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And so uh, this right here is the ultimate sacrifice. If I give away everything I have, even my own life, if I give away my body to be burned, but I don't have love, then I gain nothing. Do you hear that crescendo here? He's starting at the least consequential. I'm pretty annoying. I'm nothing without love. And without love, I'm never gonna get anything. And so this magnifies as this goes to the consequences of, of, of a life lived without love. I'm nothing and nor will I ever be anything. I'm not gonna gain a thing without love. And so uh, right here we see um, all of this means that, that I can play this, I can play religious games all the way to its most extreme ends. I can punch all the right buttons. I can go through all the motions. I can do all the things I'm supposed to do. I can spout off of, like vast scripture, knowledge of scripture. I can say all the right things. I can pray the right prayers. I can serve the way I'm supposed to serve on the externally, uh, but without love, ultimately this gets me nowhere. And so Paul is saying here, without love, it's impossible to please God. Without love, or God gains no glory from, from, from loveless works. And so if love is absent from my life, if love is absent from my works, then I'm nothing, nor will I ever be anything. And so that's kind of, we said that this passage was a pretty comfortable passage. But when I read this, even in these first three verses, I start to get uncomfortable. It makes, it concerns me. When I look at my work, when I evaluate my motives, when I put those under an honest introspection, when I have time to reflect and think about why I do the things that I do, what the motive for my works are, this is scary. 
How many times, how often am I only concerned about doing the right thing? How many times am I concerned with with doing the best thing because I think that's what's gonna transform me? Because I think that's what gives me value. How often are my works completely detached from any notion of love? And how often are my actions completely the opposite of that? How often are my actions really geared to and designed to in my deepest, innermost heart to serve myself and to build up myself? And that's it. And so when I think about this passage, it's, it's starting to make me uncomfortable. <laughs> it's, it's, I, can, I can literally take this religious game and, and look exactly how I need to look on the outside and gain nothing and be in danger of not being able to see God at all. And so Charles, Charles Hodge, uh, he says in his commentary, I wanted to put this quote up for you because um, I think this is a really good quote. He says, people would gladly attempt by external acts of beneficence or by penances a change of heart. But the thing is impossible. Thousands indeed are deluded on this, on this point and think that they can substitute what is outward for what is inward. But God requires the heart. And without holiness, without love, the most liberal giver or the most suffering ascetic can never see God. And so when I look into my own heart, I see that love is all too often absent. I often want religion in place of relationship. I want a list of to-dos over a labor of love. And so I often want, I want to swap the outward for the inward. And so Paul says, I'm nothing. And if that continues, nor will I ever be anything. And so... uh, Let's keep reading. Verses four to seven, we see some of these synonyms of love. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist in its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Amen. And so these synonyms for love, they're super important for us to keep out in front of ourselves uh, because for a lot of reasons, do you notice what's not on this list of synonyms? Um, Before the church took hold of this word, agape, before they took hold of it and groomed it into their own new upgraded definition, uh, the culture around them had a lot of other synonyms floating around for love. And our culture today is, is no different. If we were to leave that same door, take a different survey in our hands, go along Broadway and, and ask people, list out some synonyms for love. I don't think many of those synonyms would be the same ones as what we see here. Um, I did a quick thesaurus.com search for synonyms on love, and I found terms uh, like enjoyment, affection, appreciation, passion, yearning, emotion, fondness. And so while I wouldn't say that any of those things are wrong, I would say that when we look at this text here, when we look at what Paul has to say, when we look at these synonyms that we find in Scripture, I would say that the, that the synonyms that our culture use, at least according to thesaurus.com, um, 
I would just say that they're incomplete. These synonyms that we use, that our culture uses to teach us about and define love, um, they all immediately benefit the one who loves to one degree or another. It serves our immediate interest because it makes us happy right now. But what do you do when others don't make us happy? Does that mean I don't love them? Does that mean it's okay to stop loving them? Our cultural understanding of love is often one that allows us to fall in and out of love when it stops benefiting us the way that we want it to benefit us. And so when it becomes something that's too much of a burden in our lives, or when it becomes something that, that, that robs us of our happiness, then we're encouraged to make a change, not only permitted, but encouraged often. And that's what we hear. But when we look at this passage in, in Corinthians, that's, that's not what we see. And it's important for us to recognize that. It's important for us to recognize the ways that this list of synonyms help us to correct our understanding of what real love is. Real love is not insisting on its own way, not irritable or resentful when we don't get our way, when things don't go the way that we had planned or the way that we expected. Real love, uh, it bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, and it endures all things. So what about bearing Believing, hoping, and enduring seems immediately enjoyable. What about bearing, hoping, enduring, and believing sound like a quick fix to get back onto our happiness track? These things, bearing, believing, hoping, enduring, these are hard things. These are not easy things. Yet this love perseveres when things get tough. Um, when Anna and I were first married, people would, would always, and I, I still struggle with how I think about this, but they would always tell us to enjoy the newlywed phase. <laughs> and all the married folks are, are laughing and nodding. <laughs> I, I, I never, I was always uncomfortable with how that was talked about, but ultimately what they meant was enjoy this phase where everything is new and exciting and fun, and you haven't got to the point yet where you're learning brand new things about each other that get under your skin, that make things like, Enjoyment, affection, passion, yearning, fondness, a little bit more difficult from time to time. That's what they're talking about in, in that uh, newlywed phase. Um, but one of the quirks about me that Anna had the joy of getting to know was that I, I want to be busy all the time. And when I say, I mean all the time. And like, therefore... I also think that other people are always busy all the time and want to be busy all the time. <laughs> but that's not right, and that, that shouldn't be right. Um, but I think that's one of those things that, has, uh, that Anna has learned about me that makes it difficult for, some time, for us sometimes um, when enjoyment, affection, passion, yearning, and fondness are, are a little bit more difficult. But one example of that uh, actually happened this week. Um, I always pray for the Spirit to convict me of, of sin in the sermon, and it, it always comes in very uncomfortable and, and difficult ways. But um, <laughs> this, this week, uh, we had, uh, it was actually, I think, Sunday night, um, so a week ago today, 
our fridge started making this weird noise. Everything, every time I'd open up the door, it'd make this weird growling noise. Then I'd shut it again, it'd growl like lower. Uh, and then I noticed things in the fridge weren't quite as cold. And so I'd, we actually have one of those little uh, heating pads for a kettle. And so I took out some water in the fridge, poured it in there, and it has a thermometer on it. So it hit boil and the starting temperature was like 60 degrees. And that's not good for a fridge. <laughs> and so anyway, we researched, we did some troubleshooting and uh, we found out that what we needed to do was take everything out of the fridge, take off some back panels, take a hairdryer and, and basically warm up all the ice so that it, it would melt off the coils and all the airflow would, would open back up again and our fridge would stop growling at us and would start being cold again. Um, but anyway, uh, we kind of vaguely, loosely talked about doing that on Monday. Um, but anyway, so as, as Monday went on, um, we still hadn't, the fridge still wasn't clean. And uh, I became frustrated uh, that it wasn't already taken care of. And in my like arbitrary and uncommunicated timeline that I had in my head, and also going on in my head was I have, I always have a to-do list, so I'm busy, and therefore I can't do the fridge, so why isn't the fridge done yet? And so in my frustration, I walk over to the fridge and I start cleaning out the fridge. But I wasn't, the problem is I wasn't just cleaning out the fridge. I was cleaning out the fridge in a silent huff. If, and maybe huff isn't the right word. I don't know what the right word is. But um, I wasn't acting out of love. I was insisting on my own way. And I was being irritable. I was being resentful. And so this, of course, led to, led to conversation, led to an argument. It was a long argument. It was a not fun argument. Um, and in that time, on, on Monday night, um, there was not much affection. There weren't warm, fuzzy emotions. There wasn't enjoyment. Both of us hated the conversation. It was, it was not fun. But in that conversation, there was love. And there was love because through hurt feelings, Anna, my wife, her love bore my failure of huffing around like a child. She hoped for our unity return. She endured my unjustified temper. And later the spirit was kind and I got to repent and there was forgiveness and it was, it was beautiful. We're both reminded of the gospel. And I will say too, out of that, our love is much stronger than it was before. As simple as and as silly as something like cleaning out the fridge. And um, we were able to build upon the foundation that we had in our newlywed love. And now it's stronger. And so there are going to be more miserable talks when there's no affection, when there's no happiness. But the thing is that, that those are going to be building blocks for us turning again to the gospel. And those are going to be building blocks for us growing deeper and deeper in love with each other. Um, and so um, I also will say this love, it's not reserved just for marriage. In marriage, we have plenty of opportunities to see this love at work because we sin against each other all the time, a lot. Living, if, if you have roommates, you know what I mean. Um, 
being married is, this, is the same. We, we sin against each other a lot. There are plenty of opportunities uh, for, for conflict, but this, this love, it isn't reserved and it isn't on display just in marriage. We all live together as a family of servant missionaries united together in Christ, yet we're still broken children of God. And that means that we're gonna wear on each other. We're gonna act in divisive ways that are unloving, that are unkind. We're gonna hurt one another because, because we still struggle with our sinful nature. And in those times when, when we're hurt, we're gonna be tempted to lean on our culture's definition of love, say that we've fallen out of it and walk away. We're gonna be tempted to, to take the easy way out and just move on and forget about it. But because we're united together in Christ, we have something knitting us together that's so much more powerful than the immediate enjoyment of each other's company. We have the blood of Christ that was shed not only to reconcile us to the Father, but was shed to reconcile us to each other. And in Christ, real love bears all things that are difficult. Real love believes and assumes the best of each other, even when our minds tell us to assume otherwise. Real love has a steadfast hope that true unity will one day and ultimately have the final word, and we hope for that soon. Real love endures in all these things, even when we're tempted to think that it's just not worth it. That's what real love is. It's difficult. It's hard. Sometimes it hurts, but it endures. And it will only grow stronger as it does. And this love also, it's not something that you and I can do by ourselves. This is the most magnificent and miraculous work that the Spirit uses to build up his church. And so if it's obvious that we need the Spirit to speak in tongues, if it's obvious that we need the Spirit to prophesy, then it's obvious that we need the Spirit to work in us so that this love might flow out of us. And so uh, we've seen the effects of the absence of love. We've seen the synonyms of love. And so now Paul tells us about the permanency of this love. And so keep reading with me, uh, verses 8 to 13. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. And so what Paul has to say here is profound. There will be a day when prophecy is useless because the hope that this prophecy communicates will be an eternal reality in God's kingdom. There will be a day when language and different tongues are gone because we're going to be able to, to worship our king with one tongue together as one people. And so uh, Paul, he emphasizes how these gifts are temporary by saying four times that they're going to pass away. 
Um, every single one of these spiritual gifts, uh, these gifts that we're told to diligently seek for the building up of, of, of Christ's church, um, they're going to pass away, every single one of them, except for love. And so Paul even says that we are going to take these spiritual gifts that we're told to diligently seek, and we're going to actively put them behind us, just like we actively put our childish ways behind us as we grow up into maturity. Uh, we're going to actively put them behind us as uh, love becomes the only uh, gift that's useful. And so um, prophecy, tongues, wisdom, knowledge, those are all going to fade. They're not going to be realities in, in the kingdom because uh, those things are going to be fully realized. Uh, but love is different. Love is going to be on full display. Love is reverberating uh, God's glory across his new kingdom. So that's the reality that we're headed to. And so uh, this does beg the question of why we're generally more enamored by the temporary spiritual gifts than the permanent love that's going to be with us forever. Why will we be more impressed with the gifts of the few than the comprehensive love of the entire church poured out by the Spirit? Why are we more in awe of one-off manifestations of the Spirit than the daily outworking of this impossible love through Christ? And so as we consider these gifts of the Spirit, it's love that we seek above all the other. Yes, Paul tells us to desire the higher gifts, but love is that which we seek above everything else because that's the only one that's permanent. It's the only one that, that sticks around in the final perfection of Christ's kingdom. And so uh, when Jesus stood up at the start of his ministry on earth, he proclaimed that the kingdom of heaven is at hand it had come with him when he started his ministry. It's here now. And the central element of this kingdom is this real love that up until this point was unknown to the world around us. And then after Jesus rose from the grave, we see the spirit coming and working out the same love through the church, through the body of Christ to be put on display to the world around us so that they might know that we are Jesus's disciples. But even though the Spirit, it does pour out this love through the church, our current brokenness means that, that, that our love is still imperfect. So while this love might be on display through the church, it's still, right now, still a partial display of the final perfected kingdom at the end of all things. And so that doesn't mean that we can't actually see what this love is like just because we are fallen, just because we are broken, doesn't mean that we can't actually see what this love is like in its full, truest, perfected, untainted form. We get to see this true, real love in Christ still right now. Uh, Leon Morris has a great uh, little snippet that I wanted to put up here um, in his commentary on the Ephesians, or sorry, on Corinthians, we're in Corinthians. Um, he says, uh, whereas the highest concept of love before the New Testament was that of a love for the best one knows, the Christians thought of love as that quality we see on the cross. It is a love for the utterly unworthy, 
a love that proceeds from a God who is love. It is a love lavished on others without a thought whether they're worthy or not. It proceeds from the nature of the lover, not from any attractiveness of the beloved. The Christian who has experienced God's love for him while he was yet a sinner has been transformed by this experience. Now he sees people as those for whom Christ died, the object of God's love, and therefore the objects of the love of God's people. In his measure, he comes to practice the love that seeks nothing for itself, but only the good of the loved one. And so Leon Morris, in, his, uh, in this text right here, is drawing a parallel between 1 Corinthians 13, where we are today, and 1 John 4. Um, and I want us to turn to 1 John 4 for a second. Um, so 1 John 4, um, starting in verse 7, says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves God has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And in this, the love of God was made manifest. In this, the love of God was revealed to us. And this being that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this love, not that we have loved God, and that's important, not that we have loved God, not that we might stand on any works of our own or take any pride in our wisdom or goodness or any knowledge that, that won us this love, but that he loved us. He loved us. He loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. And propitiation, we mean that, that, that this son is the means by which we are forgiven of our sins. And so real love looks like the bloody lamb of God pouring out his life on behalf of his people bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, and enduring all things. And so the real love that Christ enacts on the cross is the same real love that the Spirit enables his church to enact every single day. That love that we see in Christ on the cross as he pours out his life for his people, that real love that Christ enacts on the cross is the same real love that the Spirit enables his church to enact every single day. And so this isn't the warm, the fuzzy, the lighthearted, easy, all smiles and sunshine love that we see on, on rom-coms. Um, this isn't the happy adjectives that we see on, on thesaurus.com. Um, this is a deep, self-abandoning love that confronts every notion of our own comfort and pleasure. As Jesus pondered the depth of this love and what it was going to cost him in the moments leading up to this display, it drove him to agony. He sweat tears as he pleaded with the Father for another way, an easier way, an easier way to love. And he was met with silence from the Father. And so Jesus went to his death like a lamb led to slaughter in an act of love so great 
that we had to take a word and change its meaning just to capture what it means. So Emmaus, when we talk about loving each other, let us be reminded that we have the mind of Christ. When we've been united in him, we have that same mind, that same love for our brothers and sisters as as we walk together as a family, as one united body of Christ. The thing that's united us is Christ living on our behalf, dying on our behalf, and giving us the life that he lived. And so uh, as as we go, we will be asked to set our comforts aside for the sake of the body for the sake of living in unity that we have, for the sake of of living in step with that identity that Christ has already won us, is united together as a family in him. So this is going to be difficult, but you have the mind of Christ, and so your love is patient. It's kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It isn't arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in righteousness, in truth. It bears all things, it believes all things, and it hopes all things, and it endures all things. Because that's what Christ himself has done on the cross. And that's what Christ continues to do as he rules and reigns right now, the right hand of the Father, as he prays for you, as he prays for me, as he prays for Emmaus, as he prays for those, his people in Denver and in the rest of the world. This is going to be unbelievably uncomfortable. It's going to be costly. It's going to ask us to abandon ourselves when we just want a minute to relax. That's what real love is. It's what it means to love one another. And it's by this love that the world will know that it's Jesus who sent us out into the world so that they might see the sheer beauty of real love and turn to the one true king from whom such a love flows. And so I also, I don't want us to walk away thinking that love is only hard, that love is only self-sacrificing, that we lose nothing and, and lose everything and gain nothing. That's not true. Paul, he says here in this passage that the way that we lose everything, the way that we gain nothing is to not love. And so while this love calls us to sacrifice for each other, while this love calls us to abandon ourselves in the interest of each other, just as Christ did for us. In doing that, we actually gain everything. It's to our advantage that we forsake comforts, our desires, our dreams, our liberties, our free time. It's to our advantage that we lose these things out of real love, because in loving as Christ loves, in having this mind of Christ in ourselves, the sacrificial love, we gain so much more. And it's not just, we don't, we don't just hope for this future time when we gain it in the kingdom when he returns. We get to gain it right now because this life that he lived, he lived so that we could walk in his life right now in the spirit. We get to work, walk in, in this perfect joy and submission to the Father We get to live as we were meant to live, as people created in God's image. And so through this difficult, sacrificial, uncomfortable, real love, we get to experience the absolute joy found in the gospel. We get to find the freedom of a love that endures everything. 
And then even, even while we get to walk in this newness of life right now, even though it's not going to be perfect, um, we still have a day that we're promised where this love is no longer going to be sacrificing. This love is no longer going to be hard. It's no longer going to be difficult. It's no longer going to involve blood, sweat, and tears and emotional agony. Uh, there's going to be a day when this love brings only comfort, only joy, because things have been set right Christ has risen from that grave and has sealed that promise right now that that day is coming in his kingdom. And so yes, love looks like the bloody lamb of God pouring out his life on behalf of his people. And then it also looks like the risen lion of God ruling in truth and righteousness once and for all. So real love is found only in Christ and therefore, it's found in those who have been united in Christ. And thanks be to God for this unspeakable truth. His kingdom advancing through the real love of Christ found in his people in the everyday routines of life. This love is a steady building block for his kingdom built upon Christ, its foundation and cornerstone. It's a display to the glory and majesty of our good king. So let's pray. Father, thank you again for this opportunity to come here and worship on this uh, Palm Sunday. Um, I pray that you would remind us over and over again of this real love that you brought about in the work that you accomplished and the work that you continue to do in your church. I pray that we would see your, your death, that you died on our behalf as uh, meaningful and beautiful to us. Because in that death, you enable us to walk in, in that same life that you lived on our behalf. And so uh, I pray that uh, we would be reminded again and again of this uh, new and revolutionary definition of love that rubs against everything that we want to say love is. I pray that you would convict us of of when we want to go through the motions of uh, loveless works. I pray that you would uh, remind us over and over again of uh, these beautiful synonyms of, of love. And I pray that you would draw us over and over again, reminding us that, that love is always not going anywhere. And so I pray that you would use that love to transform us into your image. Yes, Lord. And I pray also that you would take that love and uh, I pray that we would be able to love inwardly with the love that you loved us and that that love also would then go outward um, to the community around us, to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to our friends and family, that they might see the love pouring out of you and that might be beautiful and transform them as well. Um, and so um, we are thankful that we have such a picture of love that we can't even begin to comprehend such an amazing picture that we need your spirit to even begin to understand it. So I pray that you would uh, continually show us again and again uh, what that love is and draw us to that over and over again so that we might rejoice in your gospel and walk in joy in the newness of your life. So in your name we pray, amen.